Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hello and welcome to another edition of Insane in the Membrane. Welcome to another edition of your favourite podcast. But before we get into it, we've got to do a bit of admin. But it's good admin because it's bringing you gifts. Got to big up my radio show, which is over on Islington Radio. Islingtonradio.co.uk. Get on them immediately. It's a fantastic new radio show that's coming your way. It's already out there. We're building it. I've got my own show on there, the Tuned Up Time Machine. There's some fantastic other people on there that you need to get on. It's a, it's brilliant. And my show is really brilliant. It's, it, it's so eclectic. There is something for everybody. I'm telling you now, it'll be it's one of the best radio shows you would have ever listened to. So get on it. Thank you. Islingtonradio.co.uk Also... We've got some more five-star reviews. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back here. I'm not being big-headed and arrogant. I'm just really pleased that people love what we do. And I'm telling you now, thank you, Mr. Moo715. Like getting a big hug from your dad. Oh, that's lovely. That's the territory I'm moving into now. I'm I'm, I'm moving into that kind of everyone's dad. Like, you know, it's, it's a nice place to be. I like that. I'll take care of you. You come and listen to the podcast, and I'll look, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about that. It's like getting a big out from your dad. Thank you, Mr. Moo715. We've also got Joe Girly Joe. 100% recommend. Thank you, Joe Girly Joe. Really appreciate that. Apparently, I mentioned these podcasts on another podcast that I was on. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You've always got to advertise your stuff so people know it exists. Uh, Jim Harrett, great podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, mate. Danny P40, love it. Yes, Danny P40, and I love you too. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody. Um, and also, we're doing a thing. If you like a particular episode, then drop us a line. Drop us a line, and I'll either we'll either hook up, and I'll have a chat with you, and we'll put that chat out. Or we can do a voice recording. Uh, we had Mia did it for us. Um, she she sent us a, a voice a voice recording, and we put that out. Just she was just telling us about her favourite episode, which is the one with Mark Steele. So if you want to do that, um, we, like I say, we'll, we can hook up and we can record our little chat. Uh, that's for our Patreons. So if you want to be want to do that, become a Patreon. It's only it's only like a couple of quid a week, a couple of quid a month. It's only a couple of quid a month. That's what it's not a week. It's a month, and you get little gifts like that so do that for us become a patreon if you got if you can't afford to do that then like subscribe and tell your friends and that is the end of the admin phew this week's guest let's get on with it the podcast this week's guest 
is a neuroscientist and humorist, Dr. Dean Burnett. Dr. Dean Burnett is uh, also an author. He's he's uh, he's got a new book coming out called Psychological. Um, and I've had a brief look, I've had a bit of a skim, and it's brilliant. It's one of those where, yes, he's a doctor. It's like uh, when we had Dr. Shahom Das, who was on a few few months ago. It's like that. Yes, they're doctors, but they talk to you in a way that you understand. It's not, there isn't all this mumbo jumbo and, and, and science speak, you know, like I really tried to read a brief history of time, but I got, I, I couldn't, I tried, I really tried. And it's probably just me. It would probably people listen to this going, oh, it's easy. You don't know what's wrong with you. I found, I couldn't get my head around a lot of stuff. Whereas, whereas Dean, Dr. Dean Burnett, he really puts things in all, like layman's terms, if you will. Um, and I couldn't wait to get him on. Um, and so it's gonna, it's a great chat. He's a wonderful human being. He's also, uh, his, his other books were uh, the, the Idiot Brain, The Happy Brain, and Brain Yapping. It's fantastic. It's exactly what we, need to do, what we needed to do. And so we got him on. So coming up in a little bit is Dr. Dean Burnett. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A podcast from producer Paul.co.uk. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, good. It's wonderful to get have you on. Thank you very much. I've been listening to the uh, the podcast well doing my morning walks this week, and it's just really good. Oh, so it's, uh, fantastic! It's fantastic. Really nice to hear. I've been re- I've been reading up on you. It's oh, going to be great. We're going to have a great, have a <laughs> so, great chat. I was a bit uh, ominous when someone says that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been looking at your stuff. I've been looking into you. Um, <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I um, I'm I, I, the brain fascinates me. Mm. You know, yes, there's be a common thing, yeah. Yeah, well, do you yeah. know what I mean? There's things that because it does things that you don't even know. You didn't even know you were going to do. Like, especially when I when I've done comedy, sometimes I'll say something and I'll make myself laugh because I didn't even know I was going to say it. 
Oh, absolutely. Those are often like the best ones I've found. I mean, I've done stand-up myself like for yes. my, over like 14 years. I don't do it anymore. Well, no one does it right now. I don't, but it's, <laughs> no. it's like, it was never more than a hobby. But you know, people I spoke to said, yeah, the, the best jokes are the ones that just come to you on stage, just out of nowhere. And you're, is it, is it the Garu Valley? Uh, yeah, Valley. I remember doing one of my first gigs in Blengaru. Blengaru? Oh, yes. God, really? How was you, was it? It was, it was just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, because you know, because you said it's like it was the end of the road. It's exactly. Absolutely, yeah. It's literally end of the road. It's yes. the valley, yeah. And that, Geographically dead end. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was, and I remember I'd never been that up there before. And, mm. uh, and the, the whole village had their own, they had their own currency. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, do you <laughs> could, where you could, it was, they were called time credits or something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, actually, my mother was um, one of the main organisers of that charity. It was a, it was a regeneration project, the um, right. uh, the creation project to regenerate the valley. It was going really well uh, until, well, we had the, the, uh, the Olympics, and then they decided that they should redirect all funding to London to build more flats, which was oh. a bit of a... You know, a bit of a bit of a pill to swallow. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, of course it is. That's yeah, yeah. That's, but, yeah, yeah. yeah like I, I, I've got friends who did that gig too, and they were like, "That, that was wild, man! That was like a whole other different world up there." And it is, yes. I didn't realise until I left. So yeah, <laughs> nice yeah. to have that in common. Yeah. A be- they're a beautiful. They were a beautiful bunch of people. I remember I had to I had to bring my youngest my youngest son with me to a, to one of the gigs hmm. uh, when I went back and did it again, and they were so lovely. They set up a little chair for him, and he got him a drink and some crisps and <laughs> very family. Yeah, they yeah really it was lovely. It was really. I've got I, I've got a lot of love for Wales, and I've said this on on other episodes. It's such a beautiful place. It can be yes. It's like it's got some really nice. It's one of those things where you don't really appreciate it until you realise. Not everywhere is like this, I suppose. Mm. Again, because again, Valley Boy in terms of didn't travel far as a kid, a few package holidays. So you don't, you know, you just assume that this is how things are. Then you travel further afield when you're older, and then it, oh God, yeah, really nice area I live in, isn't it? It's really <laughs> really uh, naturally impressive in terms of you know, the, the landscape and stuff. So it is, it yeah. is. One of my, my, I've said the drive, if you drive down from north to south, that drive. Through the through Wales is is spectacular. Oh, that's really nice. That yeah, yeah. going through the Brecon Beacons and stuff. That's, that's it, really yeah. A, lovely vistas there, definitely. Ah, oh, it's, it's just next level. And, it really, and I thought it was great with the with the with the pandemic that's gone on and Wales just shut the bridge. I mean, no, that's it. No one in, no one out. <laughs> Let's not ruin this. Exactly. I remember saying at the time, what we should do is have some sort of you know barrier on the bridge. We have to pay to come through. That would be really handy. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. After all this time, suddenly, oh, at this point, that would have been a good thing. Whereas. Uh, because I used to MC the um, uh, Cardiff Students Union gig uh, in like uh, the club they have there on the Tuesdays. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't want it for free. I never was ever good at that, but uh, I got the gigs. No one else wanted it at the time. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was fine. But so many acts like the Avalon used to send them down from London and. Maybe half the acts would start with, "Hey, how much is that bridge? Oh, good lord!" And just big, big like five minute rant about how expensive the bridge is, which yeah. is a valid complaint. But a, you know, everyone starts with that, yeah. and yeah. b, these are all students; they they don't pay their own bridge tolls. Most of them enough cars at the time; they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we were, <laughs> and there was. I remember there was that old joke saying, "Oh, Wells is it's." It's uh, it, they think it's so great you have to pay to get in and blah 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 and all that rubbish. Mm. But Wales is well, Wales is beautiful. And mm, worth the entry wise, yeah. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's gone now anyway, so... Yes. Don't worry about it. Now it's free. <laughs> um, what got... Where, where did, what's your... Where did you start? What got you interested in what you're doing? How did how did you become a doctor? Um, it's a tricky one in that 
I've been thought of this recently, and I think again, I was. I'm not from an academic background, so it's a valid question. That mm. my father was a landlord of the pub we grew up in, small Welsh community, very isolated, very ruralish. You know, in sort of tiny little village. You've been there, you know. Yes. It's very, very small community, and it's kind of self-contained, and you know, very everyone's in each other's pockets and stuff. And so, but there was no academic pretensions at all. It just wasn't the done thing. I don't think not that people like not that where I grew up is inherently. The population's not dumb or anything. It's just no. it's not what you do, and and I was I was, I was just, just I started off as a very shy retiring kid, which confused like my father, and my family no end because the Bennets are generally quite gregarious, and I'd go in and things right. like that. Um, because I was always meek and retiring and insular, so and I think I just got into sort of sci-fi. I remember watching an episode of Star Trek Next Gen and just got just kind of hooked on that. So sort of, this whole thing of Cool, with science you can have like robots and flashing lights and <laughs> spaceships and so, I mean I, yeah I know that's not really how it works now yeah. <laughs> but um, but it was like that was like sort of got me interested it's like a, a, I think just a bit of escapism because because I was so shy and quiet and meek that you know living in a pub in a, in a, in a big rowdy rugby enthusiastic you know parties mm. every night sort of place did sort of make me go into, into my shell a bit and I escaped by science in that respect and I actually talked about this on a, another podcast, the uh, Smirch Pod Tuesday Club, me, Dan, and Thomas and John Rain do it. And Brilliant. It's, um, that's how I got into science, sort of like Star Trek and sci-fi in general. But the reason I'm a neuroscientist, I credit to Robocop 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. It's not even the first one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Weirdly, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the lesser sequel, perhaps. But I remember Robocop was a big thing when I was a kid. Like It was just like so cool. Like It was like a live-action video game. Like In the 80s, Robocop was just badass. And yeah, absolutely. Then, love Robocop. Yeah. Uh, so like in school, always talk about RoboCop and playing RoboCop and stuff, and and then they said the sequel's coming out. They're like just really excited. And I remember it's like 1990. I was watching, I think it was TV AM at the time. The uh, oh, yeah. show then, and Paul Gambaccini, the film critic. I think yes. Name. Yeah, he was reviewing RoboCop two, and he hated it, uh, as a lot of people did <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> and he said it's so vulgar. It's is trash and you know, and he's got a sort of nasally voice and oh, yeah. he said there's this one gratuitous scene where Robocop karate chops a brain and that phrase just really freaked me out I remember having nightmares about it about someone going around karate chopping people in the brain and killing them <laughs> yeah. and I sort of waked up in a sweat going no you can't do that to brains and so <laughs> it developed this really weird protective nature towards brains and stuff and uh, yeah so next gen and Robocop 2 I suppose you could argue why I'm a doctor but, uh, that's excellent but, the little, the little uh, pebbles to start the avalanche, I guess. Yeah. Uh, strange origin story, but a lovely phrase, a lovely mm. phrase, and it's <laughs> and then and that was it. Because I'm the same as you. I didn't. I wasn't very academic when I was growing up. I'm not saying I'm, saying, I'm not a doctor. What I'm saying is, <laughs> I wasn't interested. It wasn't until later on that I started to like read things and and do things on my own terms. But it was I wasn't around. I wasn't around anybody that was. There, nobody talked about university and things like that. It was always just like get yeah. a job, off you go. So yeah. Yeah. So then, what happened? So then you then you just went you went into it further. Uh, yeah. Well, like I say, I got to A levels, and I was I was the sort of the default the main um, nerdy bloke in my school because like, it's like, the whole stereotype of you know men are much more logical and rational and better at maths and stuff than women. I came to that very late. I didn't. I was like in my twenties before I realised that even was a stereotype in the wider world because. Mm. I always thought it was just assumed that the women, uh, girls and women were the smarter ones. I just, that was, I mean, in my school, that wasn't very much the case. Yeah, so absolutely. It was, uh, it's kind of hard to, you know, even if teachers were sort of old, old school or that mentality, was, you can't prove it when the evidence 
completely contrary evidences all around you. But I was one of the sort of the few academically inclined blokes who were the, the, the male students. And I don't know, just sort of that became my identity a bit, I guess. And yeah. I was sort of, but again, the, the idea of doing A-levels. I'm the first member of my family to do A-levels, uh, to go to university, anything beyond that. So it was all very much uncharted waters for me. And I was sort of finding out as I go, which obviously was a bit of a disadvantage, but you can't really hold that against anyone else. Like I met, I went to university, a lot of middle-class students and privately educated, and they knew how this all worked. And I didn't, and I was figuring it out. But you know, that's just how their life went. They didn't choose that life either. So mm. you can't really begrudge them for that. And but like, my school wasn't the most academically inclined. And because I was into it and I wanted to study, um, I ended up doing four A-levels rather than three uh, yeah. because I had like I had no social life and no connections. So, <laughs> so they said, are you sure about this? It's really hard work. It's like, I've got nothing else to do. Leave me alone. <laughs> well, not leave me alone, but let me do it. And um, But okay, I think it reflects how uh, academically inclined my school was. Like, it was a very big school. It was also... I'm not sure if it was, but it was regarded as the roughest in the area, uh, in the, uh, sort of that, that region of um, mm. Bridgendry, South Wales area. And my school was the one that you sort of ended up in if you got kicked out of all the others. <laughs> so yeah, right, you know, right, the, right. The lowest rung of, right, if you don't make it in this school, you have to either get a job or live in the woods. And that's the sort of, <laughs> that's the, those are your options now. Yeah. Um, but so like a school, over a thousand students in it, definitely. So, but if you added up the, the year I did my A-levels, I did... Um, uh, physics, chemistry, and uh, biology. And if you added up uh, the physics, chemistry, chemistry, biology, actually, if you add up all the science A level students uh, in the year I did my A levels, you got seven, and three of them were me. So because no, I, uh, I, I was I was in all the classes, so I was half the school science output, and obviously mixed blessing. You know, obviously you stand alone there in that respect, but. Mm. Also, if if I got a bad mark on an exam, the entire school average would go down. So, teachers are always very keen to help me and oh, assist right, me. Yeah, in any way. Not, not 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 break any rules, but they were like, nah. "You need help? Are you okay? Are you managing?" <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like kind of a frantic thing. Like you sort of find yourself in a weird position of power. Yeah, it's like you're carrying this whole school on your essentially on yeah, your I mean, shoulders. Like, yeah, but just purely by you know, mathematical default. Is in fact, <laughs> if this guy fails, we've got we've lost our science score for the year. So that's it's pretty bad, you know. It's a lot of yeah. pressure. Yeah, I didn't realize that at the time. I, no, think I, no. I thought about it in hindsight, but uh, like, oh god, yeah, they must be they must be cracking themselves about <laughs> how bad I could have done in those exams. So I wasn't the best student either. I was just one of the most enthusiastic in science. I was like a very much a you know, middle to higher average student. You know, I wasn't a, a brain box or anything. Mm. You know, just like more just just dogged, I suppose. Yeah, right. Just determined. Just uh, mm. yeah. It's, it's it's I find it. I, I really admire. That's the thing. It's. I used to admire, I was like, oh, how are these people so driven? It's because they really want to do what they're doing. And then I think, because I, I never really, I really never really knew what I wanted to do. So I just kind of, I never really, I wasn't driven in any way, shape or form. But now I, it's like I do this and I do comedy and mm. a radio show and I'm, I really want to do it. So that's what drives me on. Yeah. And totally. I that would be the same yeah. with you, with what you're doing. Totally, yeah. yeah. The same thing, like, so like, I didn't know university was a thing until I got to A-levels and teachers kept, telling me about it and so there's more school after this you can go you can keep going yeah. I was like just really intrigued by that and uh, I, I didn't have the best support in school not um no not nothing anyone's fault apart from well the careers advisor I told her this before but it's very relevant in that I said I, I applied to Cambridge uh, because they told me I should um I, sh I should never have gone uh, I would never have got in but they told me to apply and I got an interview mm. I think they were going through one of their got to let some of the proles in <laughs> they do that every yeah. few years or so and um <laughs> got an interview and like I just 
I was absolutely baffled when I got in. I don't know what any of this is about. But I asked my careers advisor before I left. I said, um, uh, "What? Uh, what can, I've got an interview at Cambridge. What? What can you tell me about Cambridge? I've never been. I've only heard about it referenced. I think that's just that place Stephen Fry went, doesn't it? That's all I know about it." Yeah. And, uh, his response was again. It's my career's advisor. Official his, his official response was, Dean. The only people who go to Cambridge are gays and Russian spies. Well, that's, <laughs> that's handy. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do with that. <laughs> so so that there you a, go. Yeah, that was the full insight I had to prepare for my interview. So, uh, <laughs> didn't use it, <laughs> believe it or not. But yeah, but yeah. So like, I, I got the um, yeah, did my neuroscience degree in Cardiff, and I felt like well, like. I'm liking this. I feel like I could go further, and uh, but I didn't go straight into PhD. I figured like I might. I want to convince. I want to sort of prove to myself. Do I really want to do that, or am I just afraid of working? You know, mm. right. I, am I sort of taking shelter in the the safe, cozy blanket of academia, or, do, or am I, you know, am I genuinely interested? So I um, got a job after my first degree and spent a year and a half embalming cadavers for the medical school. Oh so. wow! How was that? Um, well, as bad as it sounds, really, it's not, <laughs> it's not fun. You know, you, you are actually processing, embalming, and helping cut up dead bodies yeah. all day, every day. And that's that's about as enjoyable as it, as it, can, wow. as it can hope for. How did you so. cope with that? I mean, I've, I worked yeah. in a funeral parlour before, so I've, I've, and I've worked in an old people's home, so I've, I'm a, I've seen people die and I've been around, you know, uh, dead bodies. Mm. And it took me a while to get my head around it, I'll be honest. Totally, yeah. It's um, I guess another thing again when you become when you have to sort of process them in like you, getting them ready for burial. I suppose is one thing in that it's a respectful process. You know, mm. it's like a, it's the last thing you do for them, and it's an it's, it's a tradition, it's a ritual. Yes. Whereas I had to sort of convert them into materials for students to dissect. And oh yeah. It's it's a really weird thing because even like you know we have this big anatomy theatre like twelve cadavers laid out on trays, and like the whole point of embalming them for this is that they. They last. They don't like rot particularly. Yes. They last for a full like nine, ten months as the students slowly dissect them and practice their surgery, mm. practice their anatomy, and so on. So it's a very you know it's a deeply chemical process, and you've got to put them out there, and they're just there like all the time. So start of the year, the medical students would come in to practice their dissection, and we'd always lose a few. We'd always have some people saying, "I, I just can't do this. Mm. They cannot like go up close to a deceased person and." probe them with scalpels and uh, it, well, I suppose I, yeah it would be different yeah. to operating on a on a on a live person yeah I mean I think that's that's a whole other different you know that probably is scarier in terms of there's a lot more risk here you know you've yes. got to do this right but just confronting a cadaver a dead body mm. is such a emotional hurdle for so many people and people would drop out like it was an essential part of the course if you mm. can't do it like, and it makes sense and that if you can't handle this then you probably shouldn't be doing medicine. It's, yeah, um, you know, it's yeah. um, but you know, these are people who have, you know, it's not easy to get into medical school. It takes incredible drive and study and hard work yeah. when you're a, when you're a teenager, you know, at the, at the time of your life when that's, you know, it's, that's the, the hardest time to focus and oh, God, yeah. yourself for that sort of thing. Um, so even, even after all they've gone through, the idea of, you know, confronting a dead body and interacting with it was just too much for them. So, yeah. It, it does cause an incredible visceral response in your average human brain. And I've actually written about this recently in for my next book, but it's yeah, it's how I dealt with it. So you just have to disengage. You, you cannot afford to think this is a deceased person who had a life and stuff. You have to just suppress it, deflect it, you know, um, cope with it somehow. Like the whole gallows humour thing is definitely, you know, oh, definitely a valid yes, defence definitely. mechanism. Yeah, to, but I don't, I don't know if it had any particularly long-lasting effects on me because um, I've been 
struggling, uh, struggling, but I mean, de- delving my own emotions this year a lot because mm. uh, obviously the COVID thing, but I've, I've talked about it openly whenever anyone asks, but um, my father caught COVID in March and he died in April. Uh, oh, I'm he, so sorry. Yeah, man, but he, he was 58. There was no prior health com- complete, um, oh, complications. And I wasn't there for him. I couldn't be there. I you know my, mm. my last word just said to him over a WhatsApp call. And I've had to deal with grief alone uh, oh. in isolation from all my family. And it's been horrific. <laughs> I won't yeah, lie. Yeah, it's been yeah. an absolutely horrific experience. But one I think is important to talk about. But I'm, you know, my only emotional reactions by and large have sort of like, oh my God, why, why did I do that? Why did I feel like that? Mm. And lots of different reasons. So cultural, developmental, uh, you know, the whole male stereotype we don't do emotions things like that yes. uh, it goes a lot deeper than I realised but I do wonder if it's part of it for my old job like I spent 18 months interacting with the recently deceased and suppressing like the emotional difficulties mm. that caused in me and it became sort of second nature and it was also it, that also interspersed with occasionally calling members of the you know the next of kin to get the you know, mm-hmm. Everyone was, was everybody there is a donor. Like, we, we know, yes. sort of, there were so many wild rumors of where we got them from. Like <laughs> they all sh- shipped from Germany, or we scour the streets at night for home. It, it, it's it's really <laughs> like, oh Fred, like Doctor Frankenstein and his. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Where are you getting these ideas from? No, they're all they're all donors. But that means when they do die, you have to call the recently bereaved and say, "We we when can we get the body? Uh, you know, so we can oh, have right. students cut it up." And that's yeah. not something you can really approach someone casually you can't just go hey when oh, yeah where is he bring, bring him over yeah like, you know. so the yeah. forms have been signed now we need it exactly yeah <laughs> like pick up between 10 and 12 you better be in <laughs> that isn't something can you, you can get do. It ready oh. yeah um so you have to then suddenly go from i had to go from being emotionally disengaged as possible to emotionally open as possible mm. to be as empathetic to wow. be as you know considerate and caring and rightly so obviously there's no yes. way to do it but and did people because some put sometimes the person might have said i want to donate my body to science but then some but then when it actually comes to it the relatives don't want that to happen was it was there any or did you or is it once it's they've all have they all agreed on it or was there any issues or they said actually we don't want this to happen yeah it, it, it occasionally happened um most of the time, it had to be very by the book because obviously, they, so this that's an issue that they saw come in when they did set up the whole system. Mm. So everyone who don't like they signed all the forms, and we always used to say, "Your like regulations were make sure your family is aware of this." Right, and so like some people didn't, some people wanted, but didn't want to set anyone, so they didn't tell the next of kin until they died, and then that caused oh, wow. tremendous yeah. problems. I mean, sometimes we just didn't take the body. We wouldn't like we weren't we weren't paying for it. It was like they got a free funeral process at the end of the, yes. the session um so yeah it began, that was always a tricky emotional engagement thing so i went from being like I say emotionally closed off as possible for my own mm, sake to yes. as emotionally available as possible and it, the whiplash of that is really quite yeah how did you, you know? how did, did it affect you in other ways well that's what i'm wondering now because obviously my father died and my own emotions are deeply confusing for me like I think, why did i respond like that why didn't i do this why yeah. uh, when he first went on, like, you know, on the ventilator and um, sort of became kind of conscious that I may never speak to him again. I was just numb for a long time. Mm. And I, I know, I, again, speaking to people since, that's a very common thing. But is it the right thing? Or is, it, is that what's meant to happen? Because obviously I, I'm the neuroscience guy, so I'm always probing yes. this side of things. I'm always like, well, so why, why is that? And that doesn't seem like the best possible response to this. There should be a more uh, healthy approach. There should be a more organic approach. It shouldn't be so, like, you know, 
test, you know, like 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 the, you know, like an experience happens and you get that test card in your head, like the little girl on the clown playing notes and crosses, just mm, rather oh, yeah. than any particularly emotional response. So <laughs> there's a reference the kids won't get. But, no, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so like I was wondering, like, I, you know, part of me thinking maybe it was maybe it was doing that job for so long and that I I got, I, I got very good at controlling my emotions, very good mm. at um, in the face of the most sort of visceral emotional triggers, like dealing with the dead. And you know, that, that can have a harmful legacy. Like the brain's very plastic, very flexible. It does adapt to things like that. That's why addiction is such a problem. That's why sort yeah. of mental health problems can be so enduring and so easy to relapse into them because the brain doesn't just sit there and you know, go wrong and then fix itself again. It say, what's happening now? Okay, I better adapt to a deal with this then. Okay, I better respond to this. And it, you know, it slowly but gradually, it, it restructures the whole thing. Yeah. And that, and then I'm wondering, like, it's perhaps a bit of a fatuous analogy. But I'm wondering, you know, when you have like pajamas and you stretch the waistband out too much, and it's sort of at one point you stretch it too far and it gets all floppy and doesn't work anymore. <laughs> I was wondering, did I do that with my emotional system? Did yeah, I sort yeah, of yeah. just <laughs> push it past the elastic limit where I can't actually react anymore? That's a great analogy. You like an yeah. analogy. I read that in your. Uh, yeah, in I'm, your I'm, book. I'm fond of them, and uh, people like it when I do that because it makes things slightly. Sometimes I worry, it's a good analogy. Is it, is it right? Is it actually valid? But it's too late now. It's in the book. So. I, I think it's great. And you're right. Mm. And it, I know from my own personal experience, having dealt with people that had just passed on and then, and then uh, dealing with their, with their bodies afterwards, and you do, there is a bit of you that, first, there's a, first of all, you go through the realisation, like, this is going to happen to me. Mm. You know, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to die. And then, and then you're like, oh wow! And then what happens? And then, and it makes you question everything. And then your brain, like you say, your brain kind of takes everything, all the information you're gathering, and kind of plays with it and separates it and and puts it in a place where you can function and and carry on your job. Yeah. And so there is, a, I think there is. You're right. I think there is a bit of you that kind of your brain kind of goes, well, you don't need to. Don't worry about that bit now. We'll just shut that off. We'll put that in that box over there, and deal with it later. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's going to be it, yeah, the brain adapts; it learns how to do things it, it, based on what you make it do. <clears throat> and obviously, the, the wider world we live in now is very stressful, and people uh, in very different ways, especially now. But it you know, kind of has been for quite a long time. So, people will you know people are the products of their upbringing, of their experiences, and all of these have shaped our brain in some way, shape, or form. So, to, to produce you know, its current state. So, mm. the way your brain is currently wired, the way it's put together, is the end result of both your genes, your biology, your development, and your general experiences, which is how people work. And you know, if you've had negative experiences, a lot of them, then your brain's had to adapt to deal with those or to maintain a sort of baseline functioning uh, despite them. Mm. And that's where, some, that's where some of the problems can arise because they can adapt to wrong things. You know, if you are yes. you know, like a, an unhealthy, unpleasant relationship your brain thinks well i don't want to leave this relationship because it's convenient and helpful so i'm gonna find workarounds i'll find excuses why this is okay i'm gonna rationalize this to myself and mm. this is one example of you know it, it's adapting but it's not doing there's no sort of grand plan in the brain it's just doing what it needs to do to keep you going yes it's exactly just survival isn't it? It. Yeah. yes that's a really interesting point because yeah people say all the time why are you why'd you put up with that why are you in that why are you staying there? Why are you staying with him or her or whatever? And it's mm. just that person is just trying to survive. Yeah, you know, it's, it's easy to say. I've been asked a lot recently about, um, it's come up a lot about toxic positivity. That's something which um, I've written about a few times. But yeah. in the last couple of weeks, it's become a sort of hot button topic, I think. And I wonder if it's because 
we're entering the Christmas period uh, and, you know, during the time of massive COVID, Brexit, destruction, Trump meltdowns and lots of bad stuff's happening whilst Christmas is going on. So you've got this jolly veneer on yes. a layer of uh, unpleasant world events. A lot of people are sort of responding more to the whole um, people, you know, just being, t- pardon me, just being told to be happy, be cheerful when circumstances would suggest otherwise. Mm. And like I've written about it before, but it's become, you know, people are really interested in this idea of toxic positivity of people telling you that you need to be happy, you can control, you can choose to be happy, which isn't how it works. You know, like happiness is great. You know, it's, it's fine to be optimistic. It's fine to look on the bright side when that's an option. But there are plenty of times when you know, the reality of the situation is that you shouldn't be happy about this. This is a bad thing. You yeah. shouldn't you know, embrace this. And, or something bad's happened to you. Like you've lost a relationship. You've lost a parent. You've lost a job. These are very unpleasant, you know, borderline yeah. traumatic things to go through. To, to say that you can choose to be happy about them is completely wrong. And being unhappy, being sad, being angry is a very valid and healthy response to it. Yeah, And I know that, that's something which should be, you know, this seems to be a prevailing idea that happiness should be the default in the modern world. And you can blame that on social media. You can blame mm. that on capitalism. You can blame that on the sort of aspirational marketing or whatever you want to call it, or like well-being gurus and mm-hmm. things like that. Whatever, whatever the source is, the idea that if you're not happy, something is wrong. Yeah, and that isn't how the brain works. The brain isn't default happy. Happy is like a reward state for when something good happens. Yeah, it's like extra, happy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you're happy all the time, then it essentially becomes quite meaningless because there's no. You know, that's your default. So why mm. do anything? You're going to be happy anyway. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, like I, I try to strive against this idea that if you're not happy, something is wrong. No, if you're not happy, you have a good reason to be not happy. Then something is right. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're allowed. Yeah. I'm really struggling with this Christmas thing now. I mm. really, I, I just, it's like you say, it's almost like it's like we're pretending nothing's happening. It's like, oh, it's Christmas. And I'm like, I don't feel Christmassy. And I imagine you especially don't feel Christmassy <laughs> as you've lost your dad. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you don't, this yeah. is the last thing. You, this, oh, we already know what Christmas really is about, you know, deep down. It's just this commercial yeah. bullshit festival, which makes yeah. me sound like a real Grinch. But <laughs> I know, yeah, but it's, 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 it's valid. It, yeah. I guess people are in, I, I totally understand people are sort of like, you know what, this has been, the worst possible year. It's lasted eighty-seven months already. Let's let's just have the fun mm. bit at the end, which is what I think. That's what Christmas is usually about. You, know, you can argue the whole the gift giving, the unnecessary spending, the indulgence is perhaps not needed or can be quite a cynical vibe to it. But yeah. the whole getting together, just 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 celebrating the end of the year, celebrating your time with each other. That's that's nice, and I think people do need that. But yeah, the, the trappings can can be quite overwhelming and again at, the, at this particular point in time it can be quite sort of jarring with you know we're still in the middle of a pandemic guys it's not going to go away because <clears throat> you've know, got the day off <laughs> yeah <laughs> you cook a turkey that's not how <laughs> biology works but yeah, I, I, can, I can understand people wanting to feel that way or wanting to sort of embrace that helpful fiction uh, yeah for a brief period yeah you're right you're right i should just yeah I should not overthink it. I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I yeah. I mean that. Yes, but that. Your, I, I read in um, one of Ruby Wax's books, and she was talking about negativity and the reason why, why we err on the side of negativity, human beings, and that was our survival mechanism. And that's why a lot of it, we kind of we're negative because we kind of we're still looking around for the dangers. Like you've just said, if we're happy all the time. 
Mm. You don't really look, you don't take any notice of anything. You're not looking around and you'll probably get hit by a truck. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a big part of most mental health problems. It's like the stress system, the part of the brain. Uh, there's part of the brain, like the, the, the threat detection network is what the general umbrella term for it, like ah, complex right. network of fundamental regions, including the amygdala, the hippocampus, the periactical gray, and all those, you know, long Latin names because scientists like to show how clever they are when, <laughs> yeah. when nobody's looking. And, <laughs> but yeah, like what they do is, uh, this network does, it's not like a human thing, it seems to be a, a fundamental part of most brains in nature. It sort of like monitors all the sensory input your brain's receiving and flags up anything which could potentially be dangerous or a threat or even mm. a hazard to you. Because you know, of survival, that's, you know, in, in the wild, if the crack of a twig could be a predator. Like the, some studies show that this threat detection network is vaguely triggered and made more active by the sight of triangles, which sounds odd, but when you think in nature, yeah. things that are triangular, like we're talking claws, talons, teeth, spikes, like these are all uh, dangerous things. So like, you know, it's not like. It's not like a completely big reaction. We don't run screaming if you see a kite. That's, that's not how humans work. But, um, but no, but that's yeah, fascinating. A, yeah, but it sort of tags it, saying, "Okay, that's a, that's a pointy thing." So you know, keep it, keep an eye on that. Let's have a little bit of a fight or flight response, just you know, just take it over oh. the background. And look, the stress stress itself, the stress response, stress chemicals, is like a precursor to the fight or flight response. It's your brain making your body get ready for potential dangers, potential hazards. <clears throat> and one problem is like the human brain is sort of a victim of its own success here because most creatures can just like, what can I see? What can I hear? Is it dangerous? Yes, be afraid. If it's not, no, don't be afraid. They have a very more clear cut relationship. Whereas we've got the point now we can encompass so much of the world, of the wider environment or possibilities that we can be afraid of things which haven't happened, which may never happen, which yes. didn't happen. And again, we think, oh, what, what if I'd like crossed the road a second earlier, that car could have hit me. It didn't. Like, it, it literally can't do that now. That's in mm. the past. It's a thing that didn't happen. We can still be afraid of it. You know, like what if the economy goes, doesn't go do too well and I lose my job at the company. These are things that, you know, completely unrelated to your everyday life in terms of what you can, what you can influence. Yeah. But you can be afraid of them. And what if my partner is going to leave me like for something you've, you know, people have, it's a joke, but it happens like people sort of dream about their partner who was doing bad and they wake up and they're angry and upset at them. Yes. <laughs> they, they've done yes. nothing. They aren't, they, they were completely innocent of all this, but you still have that reaction to it because to you, it felt real. Your so brain it, thinks it, it happened, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. happened inside your brain. Like everything that real does, you know, everything that's real is ends up as brain activity in some form. So if it's, no, if it's imaginary, then a lot of the time the brain doesn't really differentiate that well. So we can be afraid of things which haven't happened or just may, may potentially happen one day. Yes. So we have a lot more to be afraid of, and that's why we are constantly stressed. And yes. Yeah. The brain hasn't evolved to handle long-term, chronic, low-level stress. It sort of scrambles the system a lot. And that's like a lot of the literature says that's why we get depression now, because the parts of the brain which regulate mood and stuff are in many ways exhausted by the constant stress chemicals they have yeah. to deal with or the constant activity or anxiety is like when those parts are just amplified because there's so much low level stress chemicals and stress response uh, to the point where they, they just they, they, the brain adapts and they become dominant you now those parts of the brain which look mm. for threats are stronger than ever because they've been worked out a lot more by constant stress and anxiety and Yes, yeah, so this this does seem to be one of the underlying things of a lot of mental health problems, particularly the neurotic ones, like your, your anxieties and your depressions. So. Yeah. 
this scene. It's funny. Uh, Nicholas Pinnock uh, is an actor, and we had him on a, on a on a uh, on a past episode, and he talks about. I said to him, "How did you get over?" Because there was a, I, I watched a film that he'd done, and it was a really powerful, strong. Uh, strong uh, film, a real strong character, and I just and I said to him, "How did you get over that?" And he said, "It takes time. This is why a lot of actors have a lot of mental health issues or addictions or whatever because the brain mm. thinks that they're, what they're doing is real." Yeah, totally. And I yeah. just looked into that as well. Is that it, it, I think what one of my earlier theories was that work can be so stressful, just like everyday work, you know, your job. Um, unless it's a job you love, like a lot of comedians find their job great, or mm. people, you know, some people love accountancy, that's fine, <laughs> whatever, each to their own. But um, most people have, even a job you really like will have parts you don't like or things you'd rather not be doing, but you have to do them to get the money. But workplace stress is like the big part of burnout and, I don't know, just mental breakdowns and just chronic stress problems. It's, it stems from work more mm. often than not. And I thought, well, because in the workplace, you're like my own example sort of led to this and you are constantly sort of, it's never explicitly stated, I think, but there's a sort of mutual understanding that you have to suppress your emotions. You can't react angrily to your boss when he gives you a dressing down for something you haven't done. You you, you have to let the customer berate you because the customer's always right. Mm, and you yeah. can't sort of call out your toxic coworker for being a prick all the time because, <laughs> you know, that's not professional. You yeah. can't cry in the workplace. It was like 2015 when one of the apprentice candidates, one of the women, cried in in the, sort of the meeting room, and that led to loads of different articles and discussions of should you cry in the workplace. So it's weird that it's the place which more often than not gives you the most reason to cry. Yeah, the one place where you're technically not allowed to. So like I thought it maybe do with suppressing emotions, but when you consider that actors. Don't they? They you know. Big part of the job is displaying emotions. Yes, but it's I think it comes down to suppressing or displaying the wrong ones. Like if you have to pretend to be in an emotional state which you're not in. Yeah. So like you know, your, 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 your raw reactions are this, but you're for, for various reasons you're compelled to display this alternative type. Like when someone's yelling at you on the phone, you know, the customer who's just I'm not sure what they're talking about, but you have they're really annoying, they're upsetting, they're giving you a lot of abuse, but you have to pretend that it's fine. You have to pretend that you're mm. happy to deal with this. And those are the jobs that can be the most stressful and can have the most mental health problems because you know, you're really confusing your brain and the emotional level and it's causing so much you know, disparity between what you're feeling and what you're doing. Yeah. And that can cause a lot of problems, you know, over you know, given enough time and enough exposure. Yeah. I think it's that it's and I think what's happening as well now with people with like you say anxiety everybody's anxious now and I think this I think everyone's becoming addicted to the dopamine and that's fucking us up a bit as well where we're all we're because we're all we're, we're we're scrabbling for the likes and the and the attention mm. and and now we and we're all getting these these hits of dopamine all the time every second and it's that must be scrambling your brain somewhat it is a bit, yeah. I mean, the social media thing is an interesting one. I mean, I've listened to the one with Rob Rouse. I know he's very much on the uh, social media isn't good side of the mm. argument. And there's a lot of lots of reasons for that and very valid ones too. But it's more of a mixed thing than in, in terms of the science than like, like than your, your, your pundits will really let on. It's, yes, it's very, it has a lot of dangers, a lot of hazards, a lot of risks. We don't know the long-term effects of social media use and internet use on the brain yet because... In, in practical terms, it, there hasn't been a long term yet. I mean, yeah, true. social media is what twenty years old at most, and it wasn't even that big at the time. So, no. let's say we've had a decade of constant use. That's not a great deal of time, you know, in terms of a human lifespan. And 
there are lots of different approaches to it and different ways of using it. I mean, some studies show that it depends on what you do with it. It can have very negative effects on your mental health because you are, like you say, constantly scrabbling for likes and things. And it, it is to, human brain is very social. We're a very social creature. So much yes. of our brain has evolved to interact and engage with other people. And, but that, that comes with risks. You know, when you talk to someone face to face, you have to sort of maintain a regular conversation. You have to respond to what they're saying, what they're doing. You have to think about what you look like, what you sound like. It's, it's a lot more involved, whereas social media allows you to, a lot more control over how you mm. come across. You can pick the best selfie from 600 different samples and, and you can respond to a comment or a tweet like hours later if you want to. You, you haven't got to do it in real time. It sort of, but it gives you the, the rewarding parts of interaction anyway. Mm. But it's kind of like, it is to the brain what like refined sugar is to our digestive system. We like sugar, it gives us energy and stuff, but if you just ate refined sugar and, and nothing else, you would be ill because mm. it's not the same thing as what we've evolved to do. Uh, it just, it's taken out the good parts and left the, the, the it's like there's no roughage to it. It's, yes, it clogs up the system yes. in that respect. But there's also the upside of, now there's so many people report that when you have like a mental health problem, you can go online and, and find someone who will relate to you, will empathize to you. And it's often a lot easier to talk to a sympathetic stranger than to someone you know, in your own life you care That's about. True. A lot of teens can't, can't we talk to their parents about mental health stuff because you know parents are too close to it, they're too involved, this too. And also the, the generational divide is more stark than ever. There's a quote I found in a conference I did, like we are currently in a very unique point in history. We have a generation of digital immigrants raising a generation of digital natives. Like parents oh, now, yeah. most, most parents now are people who were born before the internet was a thing. And so they're still figuring out how it fits into the world. Whereas children, you know, teenagers now were born when the internet was a thing. It's never been any different then. And so they come out from completely different angles. For them, it's like for modern day teens, it's like, well, the internet's always been there. It's like saying, it's like saying you were born before trees were a thing. That's not possible. <laughs> you know, it's, um, but they have no reason to fear it then. It's like, it's just there. It's, it's always been part of life. And why, why would we be worried about it? So. Yeah, so like in a few, in a few generations' time, this wouldn't be an issue anymore. At least everyone would be equally familiar with the internet, I suppose, yes. on any major advances. And I think we're talking, and I think saying that as well. I, I I've said this as well before. We like we are we're like sort of the first generation that are talking about mental health and our feelings. Like you know, it, it's been it's ta- it's been a, it's been slowly happening over the years, but now we there's been this explosion now where we're all talking about it. And we might not necessarily be the ones that, that benefit from it, but at least we're making those conversations. So in, in uh, I think, like you say, in a good few years' time, this won't be an issue. Everybody will be talking about things. Lines of communication will be open and more fl- and flowing. And mm. I think that's what people need to keep in mind, that we're, make, we're only just starting that journey, aren't we? Totally. I think progress is incremental. And I think, like, I think you mentioned it in the Rose episode, and it's been mentioned elsewhere, but the idea that... If you don't have, you know, if there's a problem and like if I don't have the the, the the perfect solution right now, then it's not worth pursuing. That's no, mm. that's a, that's an unhelpful viewpoint. Then, like so much of online interaction is like I think the world should be like this, and I'm pissed off that it's not, which is fair. Yeah. But you know that, that that's it doesn't change the fact that the world is like it is, and you have to sort of pick your battles or take your wins where you can and things like that. So like again, the whole again, the social media does allow. Uh, like a bubble where everyone agrees like the world should be like this and anyone disagrees is wrong yeah and that leads to you know radicalization isn't really a 
right word, but it, well, it, it's a known process. There's the, the group po- group polarization is a well-known um, phenomenon in psychology whereby people in groups tend to be more extreme and dogmatic than if they're on their own. Yes. Because obviously everyone reinforces each other and they want to be the best and they sort of take the, you know, the general consensus further and further and and so on and so on. But um, the mental health, mental health thing is right. I think I've seen it in my own like experiences. Like I started writing for The Guardian in 2012 and... I'd say back then, I'd say back then, it's like, it was, we're talking eight years ago, but it still, <laughs> it still feels like a lifetime ago now, yeah. which is obviously just from 2020 alone. But there was still occasionally, you'd still see um, uh, arguments or articles like saying things like depression isn't real. It's not a real thing. There's no, it's just attention seeking. It's just all that sort of nonsense. But now the arguments are far more t- likely to be about, well, antidepressants don't work. You shouldn't take them. It's all a scam and stuff. But so like, that's bad. No way yeah. wrong. That's, that's a very unhelpful stance to take, or pill shame. And these are all problems to be dealt with. Yes. But it seems like you know, the argument against you know, anti-mental health stuff has retreated to the point where it's, it's accepted that depression is a thing now far more than it ever was. You can say now, if someone says, oh, I've got depression, it's, oh, okay, like that's that's a yes. thing now. It's a real, it's recognised as being legitimate. Whereas maybe a, tech, a decade or so ago, that wasn't necessarily the case for everyone. You yeah, still get absolutely. plenty of people. You still get plenty of people who don't think it's that, but that's not the consensus now. I think that's not that's not the mainstream norm. So there is, you, know, you can see progress is happening. Still a long way to go, but it, you know, it's stuff's occurring. Yeah, I think people, like you say, people are starting to recognise that depression is a debilitating thing, and you and it's not just you feeling sad. It's you mm. just don't. It's that you feel despair, or you feel. I tell you, this this has happened to me recently. I felt my brain was just fogged. I didn't. Mm. I couldn't focus on things. My my memory was shot, and I kept forgetting to like with us. I I meant to get you on weeks ago, and it completely <laughs> slipped my mind. And then I saw, I saw your thing. And I'm like, oh my god, yeah, I'm supposed to speak to you. And I'm like, why is that? Why is my brain doing that? Why am I? I felt like it was like a like a gloved hand holding my mm. brain, and I, and like the signals weren't coming out of it, and that was stress, and I yeah. didn't realise I was. St- that stressed yeah, that's, that's like a thing of um, I think people when they think depression they focus on like I say the, the sadness the mm. really low mood which obviously is a big part of it but yeah. not necessarily always it could be people can you know depression can manifest as flat affect like you, you feel nothing mm. numbness that's, that's not sadness but it's not good either it's, it's numb bad, isn't it? it's nothing yeah. yeah or some people have anger you know low level frustration and just like, lash out anger but what are the main things which separates Everyday depression, like I'm depressed because I've lost my job. I'm depressed because of the economy. I'm depressed because of the news. That's those are valid reactions, but that's not clinical depression. One of the things, like clinical depression, is a lot more intense in these like negative or absent moods, but it's more sustained in that you can't get out of it. It doesn't change for like two weeks. That's yeah. that's a big part of the criteria. It's not just like you could be sad. Uh, you know, for any, for any number of reasons, but then you could something could happen which cheer you up like a few minutes later, or an hour later, or the next day, or just sleep on it. These are all perfectly normal occurrences. But with actual clinical problems, you don't. Like, you just you, f- you can carry on feeling the same way, which is weird. The brain doesn't normally behave like that. And one of the main theories now is it's all to do with the fact that because of the constant stress, or because of whatever mechanism that contributes to, or leads to, or is caused by the parts of the brain which control mood or allow you to change mood are sort of they become exhausted they lose neuroplasticity the brain cannot change or adapt Mm. as well as it could so 
you have like this you're stuck in this negative state and like i say you can't it's like, it's like a fog you can't feel anything your brain's yeah. not as active or the, the, the right parts aren't as active because they've been exhausted by what's what's happened to you and that's one argument that's how antidepressants work they sort of stimulate the certain parts which you know downstream which can like like pumping air into a bellows like you know to yeah, right. get, get the furnace going again or maybe it's more like Planted fertilizer in a you know, in a wilted plant or whatever analogy you like. And like I said, yeah. I've got I've got lots, <laughs> but they're all brilliant. I really yeah, well, thank you. But um, yeah, those are, that makes yeah. complete sense. Yes, because yeah. when people talk about um, antidepressants, you just get that straight away. You're like, oh, don't you don't want to rely on them. It's just big pharma getting us addicted to these things, so we spend all this mm. money and blah blah blah. Absolutely, but yeah. nobody has ever put it in that way that you've put it. Well, yeah, it's it's that there is. Believe me, how it works. Like there are there are lots of different types now, and um, like more advances all the time. I mean, they've just now in the last like year or so approved release of like ketamine antidepressants, which is obviously mm. I imagine a few people are, a few eyebrows raised. Like, what? <laughs> Joe, wait, I, my eyebrows nearly shot through my hat. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that a horse tranquilizer? Yeah. That which, isn't, it, yeah. Well, isn't it the other way? Yeah. Isn't, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. It's um. That's how complex the brain is. You can have uh. You know, you can be addicted to things which stimulate you and things which suppress you, you know, like heroin sort of blankets you in this weird euphoria and mm. cocaine is really stimulating. You can be addicted to both and like, you know, both are enjoyable, but they both have completely different effects. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The brain's really diverse like that. But the, the whole ketamine thing is, because uh, the most common antidepressants, your, you know, your <coughs> Prozac and stuff, these are SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake right. inhibitors. But they act on the monoamine neurotransmitters, like uh, acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin. Like that's like the molecular class of transmitters mm. in your brain. Ketamine acts on glutamate, which is the most abundant stimulating transmitter in the brain. So like 90% of all, no, by weight, transmitters in the brain are glutamate. It's like, um, so ketamine acts on, well, it's like monoamine ones. Thing. So there's like, the monoamine system in the brain is like the thread of, like it's like, it's like the veins in marble, you know, like they mm. just like, it's important, it's, it's everywhere, but it's like a small part of the whole. Yeah. Whereas glutamate is, just like does everything. So ketamine can kick in straight away. That's why like some of the, 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 more, the more common um, antidepressants these days take about two to three weeks to kick in. You're right. We're not entirely sure why that is yet, because it's, um, I think, we think because that whole plasticity thing, you can't just fire them up straight away. You've got to do it slow and gradually. And your brain has to figure out what it is. Yeah, or yeah. like you, you can let that raise activity filter through to the downstream parts, which right. are you know, which are being. It's like you know, like you know, like kindling in a campfire. You can just like match one bit; it'll spread slowly, um, and that's why antidepressants sort of do. But ketamine is uh, you know, it's more, it's more like just dousing it in petrol and just or crank up the flamethrower. <laughs> right, have this. <laughs> <laughs> Work, you bastard. It's yeah. like okay, this is a bit ah. more stimulating now. So um, yeah, so it tends to work pretty much like next day or even a few hours later. So, wow. But we, we, the reason it's not so popular right now or not so common yet is because uh, I stress it's ketamine. It's not ketamine. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's you're not, a... yeah, you're activating all the brain and you shouldn't really do that <laughs> if you have the option because <laughs> that's a lot of important stuff you're just going to throw out a whack there. So Yes. Yeah. But yeah, like the, the idea that antidepressants is just big pharma trying to cash in. I mean, that's not how it works. Like, they, that's never been how it works. I mean, I'm not sure that, I'm not saying big pharma wouldn't do that. No. There's way too much regulation. There are way too many people who depend on and need antidepressants to function. And they're not great. They're, they're not perfect. I mean, they can be great for some people. They can be life-saving. But other people can have genuine negative reactions to them when they end up feeling worse. That's, yes. that's the beauty of the brain. Every brain is different enough to allow that to happen. 
you could have adapted your, your like certain parts of your brain can be dominant with others and they're not in others which means antidepressants stimulate this part not that part and that causes bad things not not improvements yes. and so on and so on so yeah the, yeah it's just complex it's a, it's a it's an effect of how the brain works we don't have like uniform brains and no 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 should be but all be the exact same person and that's, <laughs> and that's not helpful to anyone imagine that um, yeah but it's true and but it's that assumption that you're going to start taking antidepressants and immediately you're going to feel better and like you've said that's not the case these things take time to build up and they might not even be the right antidepressants for you, you totally yeah try some and I think it's a lot of a lot of depression comes from that as well people go oh I've got this and then so they're like, oh, this hasn't worked either. What am I going to do? And they start to spiral a bit. Mm. And it, you know. That is like, um, something I've written about in my next book, the, yes. the psychological one is out. And it's, um, you know, a lot of people have talked about this, but the idea that mental health and physical health problems should be treated as the same is, again, it's a double-edged sword in that if you're dealing with someone who doesn't think mental health problems are real, then yes, you should probably use that as in, because they... Mental health problems are intangible. You can't really see them. You mm. can't, um, you know, you can't observe them. They're not obvious to the, to the outside person. Whereas yes. a physical health problem, you know, when someone's physically unwell. If you meet someone who's got like green slime seeping from all their pores, or like the, <laughs> yeah. their legs point in the wrong direction, all right, that's bad. That's not meant to be happening. We know how the body works. You know, it looks. This looks bad. This is wrong. You can you can tell that this is an unhe- an unhealthy person physically. You can't do that with mental health. And so to say, like, you know, when someone's mentally unwell, to say to someone who doesn't believe that's a thing, it's like when it's like when your body goes wrong, you know, your mind's going wrong. Similar thing. And you can sort of see why that example or that comparison makes sense. But when it comes to actually explaining them and like you know, getting people to understand how they work, it can be unhelpful because the idea that, you know, physical health problems, you can find the source. You can say, right, this mm. is a virus, there's this tumour, there's this break. You can go in and attack that, fix that, address it, and you can be cured. Not always, like physical health problems are far more complex, but most of the time you can't do that with a mental health problem. There is no like blob or pathogen or disruption which you can just go in, fix, and then everything goes back to normal. We're talking Mm. about sort of a flaw or an issue or just a trauma which has affected how the brain and mind is working. And it's normally to do with coping or workarounds or coming to terms with it or like processing things differently. So like, but then when you compare mental health problems to physical ones, you people might expect, well, I, I, when am I going to be better? When am I going to be cured? Mm. How, you know, how do you fix this? It's not yeah. fix, it's it's a whole different ethos, it's a whole different approach to it. And by not addressing that or not admitting that or, or not making it clear, you perhaps set up false expectations which are unhelpful when they don't occur and when it comes to mental health problems that can be more stressful again which just compounds matters yeah yeah I, I, I know exactly what you're saying and I think I've said this to someone the other day and I was saying that because it was that they were saying god everyone just seems like they're mentally ill now and I'm like no we're recognising that the world is tough it's, mm. a, it's a hard life is hard and and people are now sort of recognising that and I think a lot of it's to do with the framework that we have to live in. That we have, that we, this society says you have to be this kind of person to fit and fit into this this framework in order to be a decent citizen and a, and the perfect human being. But really, we're animals, aren't we? Fundamentally. Um, yeah, but the problem is it comes back to the whole threat detection thing. Like mm. there are still 
parts of our brain, like the human brain, the cortex, the top bit, which is like the most intelligent bit, which handles all the clever stuff that we do, you know, the imagination, foresight, planning, mm. uh, self-assessment, self-awareness, all that, that, that top bit, the big wrinkle on top, which we all recognize as the brain, that evolved, like that, all animals have that to a certain extent, but ours got like 50%, like doubled in size maybe, mm. over the space of three million years, which is a ridiculously fast amount of time in, in evolutionary, <laughs> on, the, on the evolutionary scale. It's like, yeah. that's like, that's the, that's the evolutionary equivalent of Spider-Man being bitten by the spider one morning and having powers the next day. You're like, what the <laughs> hell happened there? You know, it's like, it's like the experiment, just, let, let, just got out of control, like wander off into the corners. Oh God, it's gone out again. And, uh, but yeah, but that, that, which is cool. Obviously, it gives us all these cognitive abilities we have. But the fundamental parts of the brain, the lower levels, they're the same as they've ever been. Like yeah. we call it the reptile brain, like the the really deep parts of the brainstem, yes. which handles all the basic housekeeping stuff. Essentially, keeps you alive because reptiles have this part of the brain too. Like you know, mm. and we we split off as different species or different genuses of species, hundreds of millions of years ago. And yeah, so. Again, that comes back to what I said earlier. The problem is that we have this incredibly complex society we've built up around ourselves with so many expectations in it, and all of which seem like fine in isolation. Of course, you should get a job. Of course, you should find someone and settle down. Of course, you should, you know, be healthy. Of course, you should. Of course, you should. These all make sort of individual sense mm. in isolation, but taken together, it's a lot of demands, a lot of expectations on your average human brain. Yes, and you know circumstances prevent us from doing a lot of them we, we, we all say well, you can be whatever you want to be if you try hard enough no you can't that's yeah. just simply <laughs> you, just, yeah. yeah the harder you try the more likely it is but it doesn't mean there's never any guarantees because that's not yeah. how the world works you can't all be astronauts you can't all be Olympic athletes that's just life you know and but we sort of constantly tell ourselves differently and there are so many stresses and the fundamental parts of your brain, they don't really tell the difference between is that a tiger coming towards me or am I going to lose my job? The chemical response, like the neurological reaction is kind of the same. Right. So we end up sort of being stressed about all these things, which yeah, in physical terms aren't really that dangerous. Like when you're a teenager, it's, it's incredibly stressful to think, shall I ask her out? Uh, for, for blokes especially like, I, mm. I don't want to be rejected or like, like, like they're all like on stage, like acting in front of people. Yeah or doing karaoke something or public speaking unless it's a really really tough crowd no one's going to hurt you like there's never going to be any physical damage yeah. but again jungles has gone now so we can say that <laughs> <laughs> not so much likely as yeah. these days but, um, <laughs> but yeah so there's no physical threat there no you the worst, kind of, worst thing that happens is that you're going to be rejected by people or they're going to not like you mm. but that's still that's a, such a, that's a huge deal for our brains we're a social species and so we react the same level of stress and fear and paranoia as if we would if there was a physical threat there, something which generally threatened our well-being physically. Yes. And, and the world is full of stuff like that, in that things which cause us to be stressed and anxious about it because we fear the consequences, because we can, we have yeah. that ability. And that's where a lot of you know, the problems arise. And now, because now we're online all the time, now we have news from all parts of the world. We have, we have more things to be anxious about or to be wary of. Mm. And again, you can argue it's a good thing. Like it's good to be aware of these things. Like these things are important, but there's only so much your brain can handle any one go before it goes right. I'm, I'm maxed out now. Yeah, I'm going to stress out a bit. So yeah, yeah. I so, think yeah. I think you're right about that. Knowing because we know more now. There's more information. Um, but it, I mean, we used to know stuff when I was a kid. Like that, you know, you'd be like, oh, there's a war in this place. 
And you were kind of like, oh, okay. You know, you didn't... It, but now you're being told that you have to be aware of everything and you have to have an opinion on it and it has to be the right opinion. And, oh, yeah. and that's, that's, that's not helping people either, is it? Because it's like, you can't... I can't do anything about fighting in Uganda. I don't <laughs> want it to happen. I don't, of course I don't. I don't want any war anywhere. I think it's, it's ludicrous that we still, that we still fighting anywhere and disagreeing over whatever. And, but I can't change it. And me being mm. aware of it and having an opinion on it doesn't change it. Totally. And that's, that's a big part of like the brain, human brain is really all about, it loves control and it's mm. any sense of control. And you can sort of see that. That's why social media can be so popular as in, Yes, there's people out there I don't like, but I can block them, I can mute them, I am going to be friends with them, I can just seek out people that I want to talk to. Yes. And that's, you know, the brain likes that. It feels good about that. It causes like, oh, this is good. That means I don't get to down any stresses. Mm. But any sense of control we can impart on ourselves is something the brain tends to embrace. Like, you know, you can have, your life can be completely going to, going down the tubes, but you think, well, I'm going to start this new thing. I'm going to try this new diet. I'm going to stick to it. And you feel sort of better because... Yes. Even in, even if in practical terms, you're not really doing anything useful or which is not really improving the situation. You feel like I made a decision. I can do this now. This is like this is my choice. I'm in control of my life. Even if it's like ordering an elaborate coffee in Starbucks, mm. you feel like yeah, I want a double tall mocha chocolate whip. <laughs> I, I don't go to Starbucks. I don't know what they sell. Or, <laughs> I really not, I'm not. I'm not a coffee guy, so I just right. like, no. That's a common refrain. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so the, the sense of control you have. and But the, when something stressful happens and you can't control it, you feel a sort of sense of impotency and it does make you feel like thwarted and it, make, and it makes you feel even more stressed. Like, yeah. say, this bad thing is happening, suck it up. And, you know, like say, like, like say, there's a war in Uganda, you should be sad about that. Is Okay, yeah. what can I do about it? Nothing. Just like, just be sad. Is, well, that's not really, yeah, that's not helpful. And again, I think, I, I, well, I, I do wonder if that's a lot of time where the whole um, thoughts and prayers things come from. Uh, in that bad thing has happened. I feel like I want to do something, but you know, not mm. in a way which actually causes me to <laughs> invest or lose anything. So I'll send thoughts and praise. They, yeah. I helped. <laughs> and you know, again, I'm not, I'm not saying anyone who does it has that in mind, but I, I imagine that's a big part of it. You know, this, yeah. Yeah. So like this, this illusion of control of influence and events can be very tempting because uh, without it, you just feel more stressed. But yeah, then you feel like a bad person for ignoring it. So yes, it's like you know, it's like you're damned anyway. You look really well. This is it, isn't it? And uh, you just see everybody shouting and hollering at each other, and you're like, well, this isn't sorting it out either. This, no, is, no, you know, I'm uh, aware of it. I don't want people to be getting killed for for these for whatever reason they're getting killed, and I can't change it. And and I've got I've got shit I've got to deal with in my own life. Mm. And then <laughs> but then you feel guilty because of that. You go, oh, but my car's knackered and I've got to worry about that and or my kids need something or my whatever and then you feel but then it's like yeah but I should be worrying about this atrocity that's going on in this other place and it's not because I don't care about it mm. you know everybody's we it's and I think that, that this is yeah like you say this is why everyone's stressing out because you, you know you you don't know what to do and you feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't yeah totally I mean we, we Human brain is a very strong capacity to care, and mm. we do care about loads of things. And we are a very considerate species. I know, like any look at the news or any glance, glance at Twitter, but it makes you think otherwise. But in terms of like other species, we are, by many measures, the most social, the most friendly, because we can put up with each other better than any other species can. And like our closest relatives are chimps, perhaps. And so, like you can have, like, say, say you went to a comedy gig, 
and there are like 100 people in the room and she sat there just looking at something. Now, if you t- replace the people with chimps, like within an hour, they'd be blood everywhere, be shit on the walls. <laughs> because, um, yeah. I mean, again, jonglers are closed down. I, know, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I've done that gig. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's Blangaro again. <laughs> but, you know, but chimps can't do that. They, they, they don't tolerate the other well. They can have a certain size group of chimps, and beyond that, they get freaked out because there's too many. Mm. Whereas we can live in like cities like London, which is so densely populated in terms yeah. of how big we are. Like in, Insects can't handle that much you know, each other on, on top of each other in that, to that degree in most cases. Mm. So we are the most tolerant species in terms of raw numbers. You know, we don't tolerate each other perfectly, but no. we can just, other people being around doesn't bother us like it would other species. So we are incredibly social in that respect. But, you know, so there's a default caring about other people just generally. And it's a bad thing. I don't want other people in different countries to be dying and killing each other. That's no. awful. But, you know, beyond that, what can you, you haven't got any investment or grounded in that that issue. Like, I don't know these people. I don't know where they are. I don't know what they're fighting over. You can't really, there's nothing tangible to cling on to beyond the, the, just the raw details. Mm. And, but then people will latch onto that as in, like, again, I used to write for The Guardian a lot and they tweet out the articles. And I, again, I was the, I was like the, the jester of the science section, I suppose. Right. <laughs> and I just write about frivolous stuff. Just yeah. a, scientific, a scientific spin on something which shouldn't have a scientific spin just, just for laughs. Because I just find that funny. It's funny, know, yeah. Yeah, doing comedy. And if you would go out on the main Guardian Twitter account and you get so many comments and replies going, God, I can't be writing about this. You know, there are more important things like oh. drought, like yeah, environmental yeah, concerns. Yeah, yeah. But that argument can be applied to anything. As in, like, technically then, there's one most important story in the world which everyone should be covering and nothing else. And when that's sorted out, then we should then <laughs> default to the next one. Yeah. And then, like, so that's not how media works, not how news, that's not how people work. We no. cannot care about only one thing or one thing only at the expense of everything else. And expecting people to do that is kind of, you know, it's unrealistic. You might care about that. You might care about it quickly for good reason. Mm. But I'm not you, and I don't know why you care about it, and I don't have the same investment as you do. And that's something that's, you know, you lose that a lot in online interactions, but it's still it's still a valid point and still something which should be addressed more than it is. Yes, absolutely. And do you think you use humour to cope with it? I know I do. <laughs> my, I know my my missus has, has said my various relationships have, have said. Oh, do you know what? Just have a day off. You're always taking the piss, or you're always making a joke out of something. It's just how I cope. Totally. Yeah. It's it's a very common thing, and I think it's. It seems to be more a male thing than a female thing. In that, um, I can't think. Again, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. But my, my father died. Went to the funeral, and he was obviously one of the worst days of my life ever. But yeah. I didn't cry until I got home and my wife was in bed and a couple of glasses of wine. Then it finally came out. Yeah. And you know, on the day of the funeral afterwards, my 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 uncles are just joking about the old times and stuff. And my, my before and like I, I didn't like when I was there, my sisters my stepmother and stuff we were, they were all crying and rightly so it was a horrible devastating day but I couldn't and it wasn't like it wasn't a macho thing even like I, I wanted to I felt I had every right to cry about that yeah, absolutely. and I should have done and I wanted to, I felt like no why aren't I crying right now mm. and it was later on in the day I managed to do it when like, I was on my own and I realised that whole the whole male thing of we have to be stoic, we cannot show emotions, yes. we have to just take the piss and josh and make laughs about stuff. That goes a lot deeper than even, than I even realised. Because if anyone knows how unhealthy that is, it, it's me. Like I've done twenty years of neuroscience now, and I've worked in psychiatry and psychology, and I know the importance of emotional expression. I know how 
unhealthy it is and unhelpful and potentially damaging it is just to bottle that up. But even knowing all that, I still couldn't do it until I was in just the right sort of situation when no one else was around. Mm. So this, you know, this programming goes in really deep. It's a cultural thing, like this idea that men are strong. But yes. strong doesn't mean lifting stuff now. It doesn't mean sort of fighting no. bears. It means <laughs> suppressing all emotions. And yeah. that's, that's a really unhealthy thing to have occurred. But even when you know that you know, on, a, on a conscious level, it seems something which is a lot harder to work around than just knowing it. Because, like I say, I went through the whole grief process at the most in the worst possible way. And I'm a neuroscientist with psychiatry training, so you'd think I would be able to handle it. And arguably, I did handle it, because I, I, at no point do I think I was mentally compromised to the point where I needed therapy or help. But I, was still, I still maintain my fun, everyday functioning, but it cost me. It cost me a lot. Mm. But... You know, so I, now I, I sort of describe it as, yes, it helped being the, the, the brain neuroscience guy who knows how this stuff works when I was going through it myself. But it's also kind of like being a mechanic trapped in a car with no brakes in that, yeah, I know what the problem is, but I can't do anything about it until <laughs> I got to the other side of this because I'm, I'm stuck in here nonetheless. You know, yeah. my, my awareness isn't really helping me. I've got to ride it out and find out what the problem is later on. And maybe if it happens again, then I'll know better next time. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be more emotionally open I want to be it's mm. not like um, it's like I'm, you know is there any lack of motivation on my part but it's it doesn't come naturally no and I think that was the thing um, I mentioned this on like, International Men's Day it wasn't too long ago and when that happens <clears throat> people are, obviously I'm not the first to notice that men are more reticent to be openly emotional and to share things and that's uh, that's a big problem it's in my book as well I talked to Guy Kelly about it and he's like very open about this he's on shows about the, the lack of male emotional openness uh, I'm lucky that I have several good male friends who I can be like this with it's always still a struggle yes. but you, know, you can do it with them and it's um, me, me and my mate Simon we've known each other since we were two so wow. he's, he's essentially my brother and I can tell him anything I want about this yeah, sort of stuff yeah I have a friend like Tom Tom since yeah. I was three yeah, yeah. same yeah. but even then like, could I cry in front of him I, I could but you know we, we, neither of us would enjoy it and it would be like <laughs> be really weird yeah but um, so I'm 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 trying to be more open about it, but it's hard in that, um, yeah, the International Men's Day thing, people, you know, a, lot of, a lot of them, well, mostly women, I think, were saying, guys, it's okay to talk. You can talk to me. I'm right here if you want anything, which I really appreciated. Mm. But it's not that, just having the opportunity isn't the end of the story. It's like, yes, I know I could talk to him, I wanted to, but that still means I have to some of the ability or force myself to do it and that's a bigger hurdle than I think people realise in that I would love to be able to talk to you know, a female friend about all that I've gone through I mean this is actually really helpful to me and I can talk about this now openly because this is a good place for it but when someone says to me hey, if you want to talk I'm right here like people said they mm. said that to me a lot but I know you are and I know I have permission I know you wouldn't mind if I did but I'm there's still a mental block here yes. there's still a mental hurdle which I'm not ready to leap over yet. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I don't know why that's there. And I don't know what to do about it. And I'm trying, but yeah. it's not a case of, you know, the, the reason I don't open up more is not because of lack of opportunity. It's because of lack of ability. It's not, it's not been something I've ever done before no. in any, any, any meaningful way. And that takes time and practice to get over that. Do you think it's the fear of looking silly? The f shame? Um, Maybe it's that. Maybe I on a subconscious know. level, because yeah. I don't feel ashamed. I think, you know, and I, I'm ashamed that I couldn't. That's what, that, that's mm. what was perhaps the most annoying part of it for me, is in that, like, my father, the day my father died, I cried that evening. I, I cried when I was on the phone saying goodbye to him. I, yeah. But not, not very long, because, like, 
it was being held up by a <laughs> intensive care doctor. So I thought, I, thought, you know, I was saying goodbye to my father. I was saying the last words mm. I would ever say to him. And I had like 20 minutes notice to do this because I didn't oh, know he was wow. going to make it through the morning. I was in my kitchen in my pyjamas. It, 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 was, mm. it was not how I wanted to do this. But it was this or nothing. And I had to go through that. And I was obviously in tears about yeah, saying, of course, what he done for me. It only took about five minutes. Because oh. <laughs> what do you say? You know, and... But then afterwards, I mean, oh, the the doctor's listening to me, and I, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of him. Like, mm. He's an intensive care doctor. I mean, what 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 what, what has he seen that I could possibly shock him? Yeah. Well, like, you'd be surprising <laughs> to the guy. And, and okay, he was he was wonderful. He was great and everything. There was a, no, no, no disrespect to that guy, but so like I cried then, and I cried the day he died that, that evening. Like, I was mm. out with my kids when I got the call, and I thought, well, I can't because they're like eight and five, and I'm not. I know it's a stoic thing, but I'm not dumping my grief on them as well in the middle of a pandemic when they're terrified and they've just lost their grandfather. I just couldn't do it. Got that was a big part yeah. of it too. And it was that evening. Then my wife was obviously sat next to me, come to, and she was crying too. But then I felt bad because I was making her cry, oh. even though she was she was crying because she lost her father-in-law. You know, yeah, we were a close yeah, family. Yeah. But I felt bad because I was, oh, I'm upset with my wife now. I was like, Dean, you have every right to be upset right now. This Absolutely. is not... But the, that part in my mind just couldn't stop. It couldn't stop trying to find reasons not to cry or trying to find like ah oh, well don't do that because don't do that because you've got to maintain an even keel because of this and yeah. it's really hard to shut off that little that manly voice in your head saying come on now yeah, 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 like, yeah. It's, pro- it's programmed in from day one and it's not yeah. something you can get, get over without without much interest without much effort sorry it sounds like that control thing that you mentioned earlier totally yeah it's a real big part of it it's in again men love control like we are supposed to be the big strong ones and mm. for all that's it's a nonsense stereotype. I mean, men are just as emotional women in the neurological sense. There's no yes. disparity in what we feel and how we feel it. Just we're not, we are discouraged from ever showing it. And that's really dangerous mm. and really un- unhelpful. And, I mean, stereotypes infect mental health care a lot. I mean, you've heard of nymphomania, I assume? Yes, absolutely. Have of, yeah. yeah, have you heard of um, satyrosis? No. That's the male equivalent. Nymphomania really? is only women. Satyrosis is like, these days, it's just called hypersexuality. There's no differentiation yeah. between the genders. And but the thing is, nymphomania caught on. It's like, oh, what's the thing? A woman who likes sex? Can you imagine yeah. <laughs> a man who wants lots of sex? That's Tuesday. That's not. <laughs> yeah. So these cultural stereotypes just yeah. become, you know, they they manifest in really weird ways. But the one about you know, men not being openly emotional or not being able to is, you know, it's a really harmful one. Mm. Most more mental health patients are women than men. Um, really? that, like women have high rates of depression, have high rates of anxiety. <clears throat> so, like, you know, the, the obvious assumption is, oh, well, women are more vulnerable to mental health problems. But, like, suicide is the biggest killer of men under 35. Yes. So, is it more a case of women are just more able to admit that they have you know, these issues and these problems? So, as men will actually just suck it up and soldier on way beyond the point where they should. Yeah. You know, so, which leads to the worst possible outcome and then they can't cope anymore and they take their own lives as a result and mm. that's you know can you say that's not the case i, I genuinely can't like, guys yeah. will not admit that they have problems and they're, str- they're struggling because that isn't what men do but it should be uh, yeah. but saying that and achieving that as it turns out as i found very different things absolutely well it's having those channels open isn't it like you said it's all very well <laughs> us reaching out and saying i need to talk but then people have got ready to re- receive it as well Mm. And yeah. I've said that before, where I've said I've said to people like, ask people how they are, but re- but remember to listen to the answer or wait for the answer. 
Mm. You That's know? a really big part of it to me. Yeah. Again, I, I, but I had that. Again, it's it's such a, you know, my brain sabotaged me all the time. And I had that people saying, how are you? And they still say it now. How are you? Are you okay? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. Because, I mean, maybe at the time when they ask me, I am. Yeah. Like, lately, I feel all right. You know? But then, yeah, that weird thing where you, I feel bad for feeling all right because I've lost a parent. Mm. And uh, and also my, my grandmother died before my birthday. So oh, it's, uh, it's been a double by me this year, which is nice. So sorry. I know, man. It's been a, it's been a horrible 2020, oh. but it's nice to be able to talk about it. At yeah, least. but it's that, and it's that thing mm. of, you, like you were saying about how you're, 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 you're like, well, I'm supposed to feel this. I'm supposed to do that. Yeah, and that's that. That has like that's, that has issues of its of its own. Like the idea that you have to, or you should feel this way. Like the idea of men shouldn't react emotionally to stuff is bad. But emotions are complex; they're confusing. Like this whole five stages of grief model that people always refer to. That you know, was it <clears throat> denial, anger, fear, bargaining, acceptance? Mm. That that's a, that's a sort of mainstream thing now. But even the psychi- psychiatrist who originated it, she never said everyone would do the exact same stages at the exact same way or even experience no. them all. But that seems to be how we've, you know, it's become simplified in modern culture. But it's not that. It's Any emotional reaction from a really powerful experience is going to be really complex and individual and subjective and variable. And that's mm. good. That's how the brain works. But, you know, so I, I've also had to try and let go of this idea that I should be reacting like this. This is how I should be doing. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's a case of, well, is this right for you right now? Is you know, is, would do anything different be a challenge for you? Would it be stressful? Would it feel bad if you you know? About, would you feel bad about not doing what you're doing? And take all that into account as well. So, like, if someone needs time and space, if someone needs to pretend they're okay, that's also there's also something to be said for that as well. So, yeah, it's really complex and. You know, everyone will have their own take on it, and yeah. uh, that's something to be, keep in mind as well. Absolutely, I think I think one thing that I would take from it is that yeah, it's it's horrible that you've lost your dad, and then and in the way that you did as well, and your grandmother, and mm. but the things you've achieved that's because I've got sons, and they've achieved so much, and I'm so proud of them, and I'm like it it made me it's made me feel that all the everything I've been through be it self-inflicted or whatever and all the work i've put in has has it's they're like my reward it's like they've achieved stuff i'm like that that may that meant it that's made it all worthwhile oh yeah i totally get that i mean i yeah. don't, don't think either my my father or my grandmother would have said i wasted my life <laughs> no no of course not no. there's nothing like that but um yeah you know i, I the legacy thing and like I don't think they, they would ever either of them would have said they didn't achieve much or they weren't proud of their children they know mm. they were they always said so but again it's, it's not really about them now it's about us you know, the ones who are left and yeah. how you feel I get people say to like just focus on the good memories and like but that's not how again that's not how the brain works now in that no. I have loads of good memories about my father and my grandmother but it, it, immediately after they died those memories were now painful because mm. they now they're not just a fun time I had with my grandmother, my father. They're now a fun time I had with my father, who is dead now, mm. who just died. And like so, anyway, every memory connects to every other in a way. Yes. And you know, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to sort of get around that. I mean, over time things fade. Like the brain's good at that. There's the fading mm. affect bias. Negative emotional memories fade faster than positive ones, which is why ah. the old days can seem so much more better than they actually were at the ah. time. 
Yeah, which is why people always say school days, best days of your life, which is a phrase I hate. <laughs> like, ah, bullshit. <laughs> maybe for you, mate, but I got plans. <laughs> yeah. That's you excellent. That's excellent what you just said. <laughs> maybe you peaked early, but you know, don't write me off just yet. <laughs> yeah, but, you were um, the king of the school, and I wasn't. I was happy yeah. to move on. Yeah. So. Um, ah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's a thing like that, but yeah. So like the brain has defense mechanisms for this sort of thing. But it, you know, in the moment when it's just happened, it's going to be raw. It's going to be painful, mm. and people will try to help. And God bless them for that. It's great. But it's, it's also you know it, you don't know how to help someone in that. I had people tell me you know wish me you know lots of messages from people who knew what I was going through, knew what I experienced, were horrified on my behalf, and saying things like, "God, I'm so sorry. I wish there was something I could do." And a lot of the time. It just made me angry, right? And, and I know that's not fair, and I know that's illogical and irrational. But the fact was, I was seeing it as I wish there was something I could do. It was like, yeah, but you know, there isn't. It's a lockdown. My father's right. died. What can you do about that? You're just making yourself feel better. Screw you. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I just thought, I never said this. I just thought this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to clarify. I never lost like my. Um, I never, act, I never actually had a full on breakdown. <laughs> I was just just kicking off. Well, right, mate, I'm just saying. <laughs> Going outside yelling at pigeons and stuff. <laughs> All of that would have been cathartic, I suppose. <laughs> But um, yeah, so like you know, my my emotional state wasn't really conducive to that sort of you know intervention. Then now it is. It'd be great now, like someone to say, "Let me help." Well, yeah, if you can do this, and mm. eventually I was saying to friends, "Like, can you get some shopping for us?" Because I really don't feel like going out. And, yeah, I know it was obviously mid-pandemic and stuff. So yeah, you get, but you know, your emotional state will change. That, that that's not even a grief thing. That's just an everyday thing. Mm. Yes. But someone says like, hey, "Do you want to talk?" And they say no. Okay, but maybe tomorrow they'll want to. And, you know, mm. then if you keep asking them and they keep saying, no, no, go away, then you're annoying them. So it's really, it's really hard to pin down. It's like, it's such a minefield. It is, isn't it? And it, mm. and it all depends on where you're at at that moment, that given moment, doesn't mm. it? Like you've said, this, I'm going to, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. That's been great, man. Really, I've really, really enjoyed it. Sorry? It's really, really cathartic. Uh, talk uh, about this, this is, this well, this is why we do it. This is, this yeah. is, it's a safe space to, cut loose mm. and talk about the, the things that maybe you can't in other places and you know and I'm, I've, I've wanted to have, to have spoken with you it's been mm. it's been a, an absolute joy do you have yeah. any not advice I speak, you know you're not you know is, is there anything I don't know sort of anything that people can do to like I don't know not brain exercise but <laughs> I don't really know just <coughs> something that, what, do you have do you have any advice for anyone just sort of like um, I think the advice is dangerous. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Like I've had so many people think my books are self-help books, and they're not. And I, I'm, I'm very, very wary of the whole self-help industry. Mm. In that, I, I get why people like it. I get why it appeals, and I get like, it can be quite helpful. But people looking for answers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's the people who say, "I have all the answers. No matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your life, I will fix you." Just give me some money. Yeah, that's, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, money in it. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, all oh, right. That's what I'm like. Okay, now that. That's a bold claim, and you cannot live up to it because I know that's not how any any brain works, and so on. So I'm I'm always very wary of you know, venturing into the self help field. But I think just awareness. I mean, everything I've written comes down to that, really. All my books, my output, my just trying to in, enhance like, people's understanding of what's going on inside their head, like in terms of you know, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? What's going on neurologically? Just give it a tangible basis to mm. say, right. I'm experiencing this. Why this is weird? What's going on there? Like, oh, okay. So, the, because of this happened, then this went on in my amygdala, and this 
cause this reaction or it's, just, it's, a, it's an enhanced stress response because of XYZ that can give it a certain sort of uh, it can ground it a bit I mean mm. a lot of therapies are based on you know, like um, feedback or biofeedback or neurofeedback where if you're having an anxious episode they, they hook you up to like heart monitors or blood pressure monitors or or even like a new brainwave readout and they say don't try and suppress the anxious feelings try and like get this line down to the normal level try and yeah. get this beeping line reduced and so focus on that and it sort of you know gives it a more makes it graspable it makes something your brain mm. can cling to and hang on to and and uh, sort of lower the levels and then you know it, it becomes it sort, of, it sort of like skips the problem and goes straight to the you know or it gives it a sort of different sheen or it gives it a different form and yeah. that can be really helpful sort of a sense of again back to the sense of control so you know if you have any way to sort of enhance your understanding of what's going on inside your head when you're actually experiencing these things that can be really helpful so what i've done there is basically get a really long-winded way of plugging my own books yes you're where are your because you've got a new one coming out Psy- psychological mm-hmm. psychological that, when does that come out i come out february 4th february 4th uh, this, that's all about stuff i've talked about today and um it's a, it's basically my everything i know about mental health in terms of what's going on in the brain mm. and stuff like all this stuff i'm neurotransmitters and ketamine that's all in there so Excellent. You know, feel free to peruse should you do so i'm looking forward to reading it thoroughly i've skimmed Thank through you. it but i'm going to read it properly and your other books are available uh yeah um everywhere really uh yeah, sort of you go to my site deanbonnet.com you can see the links there or just put up a, on Amazon. He's got the idiot brain, the happy brain, and why your parents are driving you up the wall and what to do about it. <laughs> Very long title, but it's for teenagers. So. Excellent. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, I'm out there if you need me for anything. I, I'm always happy to answer questions about stuff. I'm on Twitter as at Garuboy, as, as we said. <laughs> oh, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so Brilliant. you can find me if you need me. I'm always happy to help out if anyone has any issues. Fantastic. And are, are you okay? Because you've you've really opened up on this on this episode, yeah, and I want I don't want to just go. Thanks, mate. Bye. You know, and just leave you sat in your kitchen spinning. <laughs> no, I'm, are, you, I'm, are you all I'm right? Actually, I am, genuinely. And uh, I was okay before I started, but I feel better now. And that's, again, another bit of advice. If you can do stuff like this, if you can just tell someone in a good context what you've gone through and what you're feeling, that is really helpful sometimes. Absolutely. That's essentially the basis of therapy, really, is and mm. someone who is willing to listen to you, tell people, tell them exactly what you're going through, what you experience, what you're feeling. You can't really measure how useful that is. No. It's really, really quite significant. I've 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 been terrible at that recently. I've said this I said this I think on other episodes where I'm I'm always encouraging people to reach out, open up, send me a message if you want to, and blah blah blah. But then I realised I was shutting down from people. I wasn't speaking to people. Like I say, like with you, I hadn't replied to you. I forgot to reply to you because I just shut off. And yeah. it, so to or, or, do to, even if it's just it, it doesn't have to be ringing up or messaging your friend about mental health just a conversation yeah like we are a social species by first and foremost and we thrive on interaction and engagement which is why lockdown has been so hard for so many people and that and why social media has been gone from like being the big bad to godsend and that we we, Mm. we can't do without it solitary confinement in prison is literally recognized as a form of torture because it is that we actually we cannot cope with complete isolation from people. Some people can. Obviously, you get the hermits, you get your, your wise men, but they go mm. quite bonkers quite quickly. <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah. the There's a fine line, isn't it, between being yeah. wise and, yeah, and not being so wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. 
You do, man. And, you do. Uh, and we will stay in touch, I promise, because this oh, is... Absolutely. It's been fantastic. Thank Great you. Stuff. You do good work, man. Really appreciate it. Insane in the membrane. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Made by darkhorsedigital.co.uk. Shooting, live streaming and podcast production.